To understand Isaiah 43, we have to go back to chapter 42 and read verses 22 to 25. I think a good, good process for Bible study, for those of you who are just want to know the Bible better and to read it, a lot of times you have to go back to the preceding chapter, read what happened there, to have, have you understand what happened in that, the chapter you're reading, and then you've got to read through all of that chapter leading to the next chapter, understand the whole context of everything. Remember, whenever you read the Bible, thank God we can isolate promises and verses and commandments and precepts and all of those things. We can isolate them, these verses, and they can be meaningful to us, but we always have to remind ourselves that we have to read the Bible and study it within the context of what it was written. And, you know, contextual study is so important there. And to understand what's going on, we've got to go back and look at chapter 42 and look at the big picture. When this is written, it is written a hundred years before uh, Jerusalem and Judah and God's people go into captivity with Babylon. The Babylonian captivity was God's chastening, God's punishment on them for worshiping other gods, for idol worship, and for forsaking the Sabbath, the seven-year fa- uh, the, 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 uh, the seven uh, Sabbath uh, celebrations and many things that they had neglected. And so God put them through 70 years of tribulation, uh, 70 years of, of difficulty and chasing because they had forsaken all those things. And God was giving them advance warning and God was telling about these things here. And if you read chapter 42, he tells us why they went through this Babylonian captivity which would be for 70 years, and he, and, he, and he tells us why this happened. If you'll notice some things, he makes these descriptions in chapter 42, verses 22 to 25. We're not going to read it, but I'll make some descriptions. He describes the, the God's people, he describes these Jews as a people robbed and spoiled, and that's what the Babylonians did. They, 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 they plundered their wealth and plundered their goods, and people that were very well-to-do became very poor. He says they were robbed and they were spoiled. He describes them being snared in holes. That means they were trapped. They were hid in prison houses. They were left for prey. And he said, you know, in spite of all those things, and you, know, and you have to remember that when, when Nebuchadnezzar came, that, he, that he, he did his attack in increments. The first thing he did was he attacked their food supply and he attacked their water supply. And that's what they did in those days. And that's what they do today as part of the military strategy. They, they attack your food supply and your water supply. And they cut off the aqueducts that had water come in. And the people of, of, of Judah were trying to, Jerusalem and the city, of course, were just kind of cut off from things. And they had a famine in the land. A number of things like that was happening to them. And so because of all that, that, you know, God was working on that. And, and then, 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 then he came in and he, and he, and he knocked down the, the walls. He, he knocked down the walls and he took the people captive and they're taken to captivity. And the Bible says this in verse 23 of chapter 42. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear the time to come? Now they're getting all a kind of a, a fast forward idea of what's going to happen there so that some of them might repent and turn towards God and they didn't. And, and he, and he describes here that as God, God punished them, he said that, he said he did this in verse 24 because they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient to his law. And then he said this in verse 25. This is mind blowing when you read verse 25. He says, therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger. Now I want you to think with me for a minute. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I hate, I don't want to get somebody so ticked off that I feel the fury of their anger. I mean, they're just, a, you know, they come unrelenting to you. I mean, have you ever had the situation where you, where you parked your car somewhere and, and, uh, you were close to somebody else and, and you open your car door and you're being very careful that you don't hit their car, but they somehow may be sitting in their car and they imagine that you hit their car. Have you ever had that happen where they think you've hit their car and they come out and there's this look, this demonic look on their face, this look of rage and, and, you know, they want to grab a wrench and they're about to come after you. I remember one time I went to the post office and opened my door 
and I don't think I touched the guy's car, but he think I t- he thought I caught his uh, touched his car. And I went to the post office just to get some mail out of the post office there, put my key in the lock. The guy came up to me, he just started cussing me out. I turned, so who's cussing me out here? And he started cussing me out, and he started cu- and he started following me. And I thought, well, what is this guy doing there? So you know, I had some stuff in the back of my car. I said, well, you know, if I have to defend myself, I'll have to defend myself, you know. But hope I'd have to get down that place there, if you know what I mean. And so he came after me. And, and he just, he gets, he gets, I said, sir, I said, now, if you think I touched your car, I apologize. I don't see anything on your car. But he just kept going and going. And going. I mean, he said, demon- you know, you ever had that happen to you where they just get really angry about you about something like that or they throw you? And I had to get in the car. I backed my way out very carefully. I got out there and I made a roundabout way because I didn't know if he was going to follow me or whatever. I just wanted to lose the guy somewhere. I didn't want to deal with that issue there. But, you know, when you get somebody really ticked off, you get them really, really ticked off. Amen. And the Lord says here in verse 20, 20, 20, uh, 24, he said, 20, 20, uh, 5, excuse me, he said, He has poured upon them the fear of his anger. Well, you think with me for just a minute. They, they've had a famine. They're killed by the sword. The temple is burned down. The gates are burned with fire. Uh, the, the, the walls are burned down. And a number of these people are taken captive. And when you look back, when you read Jeremiah and, he, and his account of that, and Nehemiah, many years later, as he said, his, he got a report from his brothers. I mean, it was a very terrible situation. And you would think that that would bother these people as they're getting kind of a foreshadowing of things to come. And in verse 25, he mentions a statement. He says, and it has set him, and it says, and it has set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not. It burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. That's an amazing thing. God is saying there that there was fire around them, and there was burning, and yet they did not acknowledge that the Lord was doing this in their life. Well, 70 years of captivity would go by, and God raised up, as we read about here, we'll see in a, su- in a uh, subsequent chapter, about a man by the name of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And God raised up Cyrus to be friendly to the Jews. They had already gone through the 70 years God said they would go through, and God would use Cyrus. He, the Bible tells us, I mean, historians tell us that, that Cyrus, Josephus tells us actually this, that he actually read Isaiah. And he read about his name being there and about the mention of his birth, you know, 170 years before he would be born. And he reads about this and he's inspired by this. He said, well, you know, the God of heaven said that I would be born and I would send these people back. And he says, well, you know, I'm going to send these people back. And he not only just read Isaiah, but he probably read over there in Ezra and so forth there. So he started commissioning them. Of course, you know your Bible that you know that the Jews went back to Jerusalem in three different waves of time they went back there. But what we're seeing here is that the Jews have all this knowledge. They're given all this information here. But it doesn't change the fact that they still sinned. They still kept committing idolatry. They kept turning their back on God. And so God, God is giving them a comprehensive understanding of things. And he gives us chapter 43 now. He writes chapter 43 because he knows there's going to be some Jews that are going to come out of captivity. They're going to go through the trial and they're going to be wandering, reading and wandering and thinking about it in their mind. What are we supposed to do? What do we do about this trial we're going through? What do we do about this circumstance? And God gives us chapter 43 to help us understand God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And in the midst of all this, God tells him he's creator God, he's savior God, he's the holy one of Israel. And then we get to verse 11. Go to verse 11 with me again, please. As we go to verse 11, we read this chapter and there's two things God wants us to understand. There's two central messages in chapter 43. Message number one is, I made you and I have a purpose for your life. 
Now, for every young person here today, and every single person, every new Christian here today, you're probably wondering, what am I supposed to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? What do I do? Maybe you're in this place, you're in this midlife crisis place in your life where you realize that you've gone as far as you can. You don't like your job. Your job doesn't like you. You know what I'm saying? You know, you're at this place, you're not sure what to do. And, you, you know, it's like kind of like we've been doing this HBC Cares and a number of, of uh, facilities. And every now and then we have a nursing supervisor pulls us on the side and says, you know, thank you for what you're doing. We feel very, we feel overworked and unappreciated. Quite frankly, it's not fun doing what we do anymore. There's the politics, there's administrative hassles, all those things. And maybe you're a young person right now, an adult person, you're wondering, what am I supposed to do with your life? Well, I want to tell you today, God has a purpose for your life. God has something great to fulfill. It's greater than your imagination. The problem is we try to take God's plan and put it in our little mindset to think in terms of what it is. And we think of it from our little mindset. We really can't comprehend God's mindset. But you know, when we get into the God's word and we start reading it and we take it in accordance with the promises of God, we start to realize God has a grand purpose and a big purpose and a greater purpose than we could ever understand. And God wants to do some great and wonderful things that we can't even comprehend what he'd do if we would just be a life that's surrendered into the hands of God. And so he gives him chapter 43, and he tells him, I made you for a purpose. And there's a second message God has in this chapter. Not only did God say that I make you for a purpose, but he says you're going to find in life that you're going to find yourself in a difficult spot. And God said this, watch this, and he says this in this chapter, I will make a way where there is no way. I will make a way where there seems to be no way. Now, we're all going to come to a place in life where everything seems like a fog and everything seems so murky. We're not sure. We're kind of like a, a scuba diver going into some murky waters. And even though he's skilled in scuba diving, he can't see beyond his hand in front of his face. He's wondering, I don't even know if I can find what I'm looking for. But God says this. We are going to be in situations of life where our hand is going to be right in front of our face. That's as far as we can see. And we're looking at things and wondering, what do I do? God says, I will make a way where there is no way. We get to verse 11. To understand that God has a purpose in our life and to understand that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. We're not sure what to do and what's going to unfold. And it's kind of like a soldier who's, who's, who's just, you know, that's at war and he's, and he's strong and he's muscular. And then, uh, then he walks by, a, 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 you know, a, one of these, bomb, these roadside bombs and he loses both legs. And he wakes up in the hospital after many surgeries and he wonders what's going to happen with my life. And he says, the things I planned, I can't do them anymore. And I'm going to have artificial legs and artificial limbs and I've got to start all over and I've got to go through rigorous years of physical therapy and he's wondering do I have any purpose in life and the first response or reaction he has is that he's very bitter in life and bitter with God and bitter with the situation and bitter about being at war and what do I do about the situation you know we get in those situations in life God parks us there so we stop for a minute and realize that you know why is this all happy and we have to understand something as a young person our mind is so limited and we say well God why do you have a purpose for my life and as an older person we get old and we get sick and, and uh, or we may go through bouts of cancer things like that and we're what do I do with my life? Or we get this place where we're at a crossroads in life and we're really not sure what to do. I've graduated. I've got my degrees in school and I've got all this, but I can't find a job. I can't find the job I want. And now I'm in the job I thought I want, but I don't like my job and my job doesn't like me. And I don't like this corporate world business. And I don't like the fact I got a supervisor that is, that is taking advantage of me and all these kind of things. I mean, we go through all these gyrations wonder, well, God, really what do you have in mind? Let me tell you this. God has a purpose. God will make a way. But first understand that we can't push our way and we can't form the purpose. We've got to go to verse 11. And verse 11 helps qualify for us that there's one thought we have to have. And look what he says. He says in verse 11, I even, I am the Lord. 
What God is saying, you have to settle the fact in your heart and mind, there's only one God. There's only one Lord of your life. You can't serve, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God, you can't serve mammon. You've got to come to the conclusion realizing, I, even I am the Lord. And when God said that, He didn't say it in such an emphatic way that was kind of pushing them off or telling them that you don't want me. He was saying it in a very loving, a very sympathetic way, a way that reminded them about the covenant relationship He had with them. He said, I am the great I am. He said, I am the self-existent one. I'm the one who's infinite and I'm the one who's great and I'm the one who's mighty and I'm the one who made you. He said, I'm the one who loves you. When he says, I am, he's speaking about the fact he loves you. Hey, listen today, you might feel discouraged in a way, but I want to tell you today, God really does love you. But he's not done yet. I even, I am the Lord, and notice this, and beside me, there is no Savior. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who died on the cross for every sinner. There's only one Jesus who was God who became man, manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, received the scene of angels, received on up to glory. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who's the propitiation for all of our sins. There's only one Jesus who's Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate with the Father. There's only one Jesus who's the mediator between God and man. There's only one Jesus who said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There's only one Jesus who said, I will be with thee no matter what. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus you have to trust. Are you hungry? He's the bread of life. There's only one Jesus that can satisfy your soul. Hey, are you thirsty this morning? There's only one Jesus that can satisfy your thirst. He's the living water. Hey, are you scared of death? There's only one Jesus who said, I am the resurrection, the life. He that believeth on me, though you're dead, yet shall he live. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who can answer your prayers. There's only one Jesus who told us, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, that will I do. There's only one Jesus we go through and asking God to work through us and we pray in Jesus' name. There's only one Jesus whose name is the preacher said last Sunday. We worship and honor from the rising sun to the going down of the same. There's only one Jesus. Not to be confused with anybody else or anything else. Don't you notice in our passage of Scripture this morning, there's only one Jesus, and number one, we are His precious possession. This is my phone. You wouldn't want my phone. I need to trade my phone. It's got cracks and everything, but it's my phone, and I won't let you have it. Amen? It's mine. I like getting around little kids nowadays in my stage of life. Can I have it? No! Why? It's mine. You know what God says about you? The devil wants you. He says, you're mine. The world wants you. God says, no, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. You try to mess my little granddaughter? She's mine. I'll break two commandments to prove it. Amen. You want to bring false doctrine to the church? Now I'll protect it, but I'm going to tell you something. The church is his. He says, they are mine. 
The devil's the accuser of the brethren. He gets up into heaven as the adversary of God, the adversary of every believer. He casts, he casts allegations and things against us as he did with Job. But God says, he's mine. Listen, the devil wants your children, but your child is saved and they put their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. God reminds you and I, she's mine. He's mine. Look what he says in verse 1. But now, thus saith the Lord. Now God's writing this. He tells them about the future. He tells them about their judgment. tells them about their chasing. But he brings them back to verse 1. He says, but let me bring you back to now. He says, because you've got some insecurities. And God knows, because God knows all things. God knew that there would be a time coming in the future when some old Jews would read this chapter and they would be in capti- coming out of captivity and they're discouraged and they're not sure whether or not they should listen to Cyrus and going back with those group that's going back to Jerusalem. And they, they're settled there. You have to remember, it's the second generation now that's, that's that's there in Jerusalem. The first generation are taken captive. They've gotten older and just a few of them are alive. Most of them have died off there in that, in that foreign land there. And so it's the second generation. And the second generation, they've got their jobs there and their careers there. And they've, they're settled there and they've built their homes there and they've got some land out there and they've got some animals they're doing and they've got all those things there. But now God said, that's not where I want you to be. You've got to go back to Jerusalem. Time's to come. You need to go back there and you need to go back there and lay the foundation. You've got to build the temple. Listen, there's a temple that needs to be built. There's a, he said, there's a worship of God you've got to do and there's a return to the festivals and the feasts and the ceremonies that we've, we, we've established many years ago. And so some of them would go, but they would go with discouragement and insecurity because when, as soon as they got to Jerusalem, they saw a mess. They saw a mess there. I mean, they saw burning. and I mean, it looked like a third world country that had been through a war. God said, but now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, Israel. Listen, God tells us here in this verse, notice in verse 1, he tells us that he, we are his, 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 his precious possession. Why did he do that? Well, number one, he tells us that he created us. And I want you to understand something. You and I are not a blob that appeared out of anywhere, amen? Aren't you glad you're not a blob, amen? Aren't you glad you're not an accident? I mean, you talk about intelligent design. When we talk about creation, it's intelligent design, intelligent purpose. I mean, you read, you read Proverbs chapter 8, it talks about the wisdom of God and how God created, the wisdom of God is revealed through creation. You ought to read Proverbs chapter 8 again to just remind yourself about the wisdom of God that's practiced there in creation. But I want you to think about this with me. You go to Psalms 139, and here's how David talks about how our response should be to creation. He said, as he thought about God making him, and he thought about Psalms 139, God knowing all things, and God being everywhere at one time, and God being able to do all things at one time, and God knowing all things, and God being greater than all things. I mean, God is omnipotent and omnipresent and, and omnipotent and all that and omnipresent. He says this, notice verse 14. He says, Psalms 139, verse 14. He says, I will praise you. Listen, if there's a proper response about creation, it ought to be like David just saying, I will praise God. Let's praise God for who you are. Let's praise God for how he made you. Let's praise God for your health. And let's praise God for your talents. Let's praise God for your intelligence. And let's praise God where he put you. But more than that, God made you. He made you special. He made only one you. Aren't you glad of that? I'm glad of that. Amen. He said, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Notice verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of earth. For those of you unfamiliar with that verse of Scripture, you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the fact that life begins at conception. One of the contested areas we're going to find in this year's election about the candidates you're going to choose from, you better study very carefully what they believe about life and what they believe about abortion because I want to tell you, contrary to what they tell you there in the, on all the, the different propagandas there, life begins at conception. They want to tell you we can take, we can take away life at any term of pregnancy, even late term pregnancy. But God says life begins at pregnancy. Here's what, Je- here's what David said. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret. He said, I may have been just, I may have just been just a very small, very small person inside the womb of my mother. But he said, my substance was not, I mean, you fathom that with me. When we were just, we, we didn't have an identity. We didn't know who we were. We had an identity with God. And he said in verse 16, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. I mean, you think with me about the book of life. It's more than the fact that when you were born, your name was put in there. God wrote in the book of life what he says in verse 16. He says here that my, my, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being un- unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written. I mean, God wrote down how many fingers you'd have. And God wrote down you're going to be right-handed or left-handed. And God wrote down how many feet you'd have. And how many toes you'd have on your feet. And he wrote down about your intelligence and the color of your hair. I mean, everything about you. Nothing is hid from God. It's all written right there in that book of life. God has a very detailed description about your life and mine. That's incredible. He said, I've made you. But he said, I also formed you. Look at that. He said, fear not, for I've redeemed thee. He said, oh, Jacob. He said, I, I, and I am he that formed thee. Now, the word form, you want to circle that. Different idea than creation. The word form has the idea of a potter. And clay. A potter. And clay. A good field trip to take your children on. Or to go to a pottery place. Where they actually have a potter's wheel. And they take the lump of clay. And they put it on that, on that table. And he starts to move that wheel. And he puts his hands inside. And he fashions. Did you know the potter is not looking at a picture? He has already in his mind a mental image of what this is supposed to be. Now, if you've never been to a pottery place where they make things, you see the benefit of it because you go to the store where they sell it and you see these beautiful vases and the colors associated with it and you see these, these different vessels as the Bible calls them and we just take that for granted. But listen, there was a potter who in his mind was thinking about, I'm going to fashion, I can see this as being a beautiful vase that's going to be in somebody's home and they're going to love it and I can see this being a pot that someone's going to use and I can see being this and that and, and he's just fashioning, forming it and, and it has the mind, look, look at verse 1, he says, he says, I am God that formed thee. You see, we are, we, are, we are clay in the potter's hand. And the clay doesn't have a right to tell the potter, don't, I don't want you to make me what you want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. And so we read Jeremiah chapter 18. In Jeremiah 18, he calls it pottery or clay that's marred in the potter's hand. In other words, he, makes it, he wants to make it a certain way, but instead of it being upright like this, it kind of bends itself over because, because the clay did not cooperate. And because the clay did not cooperate, it was marred. But you know what's a blessing? Even though it may be marred, it can still be remade in the potter's hand. 
And so he puts us back on that table again, and he starts, he breaks us back down again, and he has to form us and shape us. And here's what God's saying here. He's saying, listen, I've made you, I've formed you, I have something wonderful for you. But then he goes on, he's not done yet. He says, but I'm not done yet. He said in verse 1, he said, now fear not. Now we're going to have fears as we get older, and we're going to have fears as we face new challenges, and we're going to have fears if we lose our job, we're going to have our fears if, 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 our, if we have financial failure, and we're going to have fears if our health fails, but he says, fear not, he says, for I have redeemed thee, I have bought thee, and we're going to come back to redemption in a minute there, he says, fear not, I made you, and I formed you, and I've redeemed you, he says, I've called thee by name, listen, aren't you thankful today that God knows your very name, God knows your very identity, God knows who you are, he said, I've called you by name, you're just not a nobody, listen, with God, every Everybody's a somebody with God. And he makes these words. Listen, watch what he says there. Thou art mine. You're mine. You're mine. Devil can't have you. You're mine. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar had you for a brief period of time, but you're mine. He said, yes, Cyrus will have your brief period of time, but you're mine. You're going to have fights and wars on the way, but you're mine. Hey, brother, sister, Christ, what a wonderful thought to know. He is mine. A little boy, been reading some magazine books. He got in his mind this idea. You know, I've got this, some wood, and I've got the tools. I want to make a little boat that I can float down the water got this magazine out. He got some, and I forgot what kind of wood you call it, but it's kind of like the, the, the you know, like when you make a wooden airplane, those little, little, little flimsy light wood, very light, light type of wood. And he got some of that, a little bit heavier material, but he knew it could float on water. And he made a boat and, you know, just he had the conclaves and all that and shaped it out and he put a little stick inside and put a sail on it. I mean, just, he had his mind to build this wonderful boat. He says, you know what, I, we don't have much, but I'm going to make my own boat, make my own toy. He spent a lot of hours, he finished it, he put a little paint on it, got that sail just right. And he thought, you know, he made a boat about this big and he said, he told his mother and father, he said, Mom, Dad, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down to the, the river edge where, you know, the family went swimming and things like that. It was a big river. He said, I'm going to just, I'm, I'm going to let it go there. And he thought he knew the currents and the winds and all that kind of stuff. And on that particular day, he put it out there and he, he kind of pushed his boat out of the water and he thought, well, you know, it'll be close to I can get to it. But somehow there, a wind current came and with the wind current and plus the stream, the, the, the current of the water was going in a direction a little bit faster. He got out in the water, tried to chase after it, but the wind kept pushing and the current kept moving. And he started going down very quickly down, down, rivers, down the river. So he got out of the water. He started running across the bank. He tried to keep up with it, but he found that the, far, the more hard he tried to run, the winds and the current just kept blowing it further. And he lost sight of his boat. And he said, oh man, I've lost my boat. We can imagine, he spent all these hours making it. You know, it's kind of like a kid making all this, you know, spending hours making a Lego train or something like that, and somebody coming by and crushing it. You know, you're, the, the child is very disappointed in that. And he was very disappointed that little boat that he spent all those hours he made, and he had painted and put the little sail in it, floated away down the river, and he couldn't find it. A few weeks went by, and the family went to town to go shopping. And uh, mom and dad went to, you know, the, the family grocery store in those towns, and the little boy went to a toy store next door, and he went over there, and he looked in the window, and he, and he was about to go inside, but he looked in the window again, he stopped, and he said, whoa, that looks like my boat. He looked inside, and it was his boat. I mean, he saw the carvings, I mean, it was unique to me. I mean, he knew it was his. By the way, God knows you're his too, amen? But it had a for sale sign on it. 
Somebody found the boat and brought it inside and probably got money for it, probably 50 cents or something like that. And, and, the, and the owner of the toy store said, that's a nice looking boat. It's in good, pretty good condition. He said, where'd you find it? He said, the guy probably told him, I found it on the water there on the water's edge. He said, probably, probably floats down there. So he took it and he put a for sale sign. This is back many, many years ago. He said, for sale for $1. And that was back in the days when $1 was a lot of money. I guess today, if you don't have any money, a dollar still is a lot of money. Amen, you know? Look, <clears throat> we saw that boat. He walked inside. He says, sir, that boat. He said, you like that boat, son? He, said, he, says, he says, sir, not only do I like the boat, that's my boat. He said, what do you mean your boat? He said, and he told the man the story. He said, son, somebody found it, brought it in here, and I paid him some money for it, and it's up for sale. He says, I just can't give it to you. I bought that boat. If you want it, you're going to have to give me, it says for sale for a dollar. If you want it, you go get a dollar and come back here and bring me the dollar for it. He said, but don't wait. I've had several people interested. You better come back with that dollar. Well, the boy told his mother and father. He said, Mommy, Daddy, he says, listen, you keep shopping. If you don't mind, I'm going to run back home. They said, why? He says, I saw my boat. I've got to get a dollar to buy it. They didn't know what's going on. They, he didn't want to stop and tell me. He ran home. He broke open his piggy bank, and he counted all the change. He had pennies and nickels and dimes and a couple quarters here and there. And he said, I think I just have enough for a dollar. He counted it up. He brought all the money back. He held it in his hand like this. He was afraid he'd drop it and spill it everywhere. He just held it very tightly in his hand. He came inside the store. He took that money. He put it on top of the counter. He said, here. Count it out. I've got a dollar here. The guy started counting out the pennies and nickels and dimes, a couple quarters. He said, yep, you've got a dollar here. He says, I'm going to take the boat and give it to you. He went to the store window. He took the boat, took the for sale sign out, took the boat, gave it to the boy. He said, boy, here, here is your boat. The little boy took the boat and he walked outside. He was so happy. As he started walking up the street, this is what he said. He looked at his boat like this and he held it very tight. He said, little boat, First I made you, and now I bought you. You're still mine. Hey, listen. God made us, and then he saved us. He bought us. We were his when he made us. We're even more his when he saved us. You're mine. There's only one Jesus. We're his precious possession. You're feeling insecure? You're feeling unloved? You're his precious possession. There's a second thing. Notice this, verse 2. There's only one Jesus. And we have his protective presence in our life. His protective presence. Look at verse 2. Now remember, he's writing to people that years later would read this. And only when we get to heaven will we understand who this encouraged and helped along the way. They told them, you belong to me. It's like the song says, now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Amen? Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Now they've got set on their mind. He says, thou art mine. But secondly, now God has to tell them that they have to be assured when they go through some difficult times in life, they have His protective presence. And He tells us two things that every Christian is going to go through. Number one, He talks about the waters. He talks about the floods. 
He talked about the waters of life that we're going to go through. Listen, there's trials that we go through, and some of those trials are trials by water. And he describes them in verse, verse 2. He says, when thou passest through the waters, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll get back to the promise he gives. He says, when thou passest through the waters and through the rivers. My friend, do you understand this morning, all of us are going to go through the waters. All of us are going to go through rivers experience. Now, what he wrote to them was not some new theological understanding. And what he told them here in verse 2 was something they would draw from, from their rich history, from, the, from what God had done in their lives. And I think there's two things that came to their mind. Number one, the first thing that came to their mind was the great, the great historical deliverance that God gave to Israel through the hand of Moses there at the Red Sea. Because as they thought about the waters, they thought about, they thought about that Red Sea experience as God had given them deliverance to come out of Egypt. But as they came out of Egypt, they had the Egyptian army behind them, which did not want to let them go. And they're thundering across that desert with their chariots and with their horses and with their soldiers. And now Israel is there at the, at the water bank of the Red Sea that's overflowing. And just to look to the other side just seemed like that's so far to cross. I'm not sure we can make it all the way to the other side. And so when they're thinking about the waters, they're thinking about waters that are deep. They're thinking about waters that are uncrossable. They're thinking about waters that will drown them. They're thinking about drowning. They're thinking about fear. I don't know about you, but if you can't swim, if you're some, especially the dove, if you can't swim, you're a little bit reluctant to go near water, right? Right? You're a little bit reluctant to go near water. I mean, you don't want to get too close because you know you can't swim and you panic there. Now, if, if nobody's ever taught you, the first thing you do is you fall in water. Don't panic. Just let your body go because the buoyancy of your body is lighter than water. And you can just, you'll, you'll eventually float. You can float your way. But if you fight it, that's how you drown. It's just in case you ever fall off a boat or something like that or somebody throws you off a boat there, okay? Just remember, just let yourself float there and you'll be fine. Your buoyancy of your water is just not kind of like, kind of like when a body goes, somebody goes, goes onto the Dead Sea. There's so much salt content. You could just float there. They say it's, it's almost impossible to drown on the Dead Sea. I don't know who've ever tried that, but you know, they just say, if you just float there, you'll be fine on that. Now, but wonder, here's what I'm saying here. They had in their mind this idea of, of water and they understood the Red Sea spirits. Hey, do you remember that story there in Exodus chapter 14? They arrived there and, and Israel got mad at Moses and, and they, God told them, you need to go forward. You can't stay here anymore. And so God, God sent them a wind that came by night that parted the waters because in their mind, for the old people and the sick people and the babies and all those, they were thinking there, how are we going to make it across there? I mean, these waters Waters are too deep. We can't even cross it. Well, nobody, none of us can swim that far. But God sent a wind. As he sent the wind, he parted the waters hither and thither. And of two walls came up. And, and the ground in which they would walk, that seabed would become dry. And here's the amazing thing. God put before them a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, and this, which represented the presence of God. And God led them along the way. As Moses had his rod extended and pointed the way, he said, just go forward. We need to trust in God. And they made their way through. And even though the Bible doesn't really say this to us directly, we we do know, as we read through the context of the chapter, every one of those Israelites, every one of them, as they walked through the Red Sea, they walked through with fear. They walked through wondering if God was going to let the waters crash on them. They wondered if they were going to sink in that, in that, that seabed, which God had made dry. And by the way, they started that journey at nighttime when they couldn't see very well. But they had the presence of God. They had the, they had the pillar of cloud by day and the, and the pillar of fire by night. They had the very presence of God. Now, if you look at chapter 43, verse 2, here's what God is saying. When thou passest through the waters, watch this, I will be with thee. When God is saying, when you've got to go through deep water experience, when you're going to have to go through waters that are over your head, he says it doesn't matter how deep the waters may be. It doesn't matter how murky the waters may be. God said, I am with you no matter what. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you until you go through the waters. Then he tells them about the river. I'm thinking the Jordan River experience. You remember there, Joshua led them to the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 3, 
The first people that were supposed to go to the river were the, were the, were the priests, the high priest led them, the priests with them, and they carried the ark of God, which was the, the symbolic, the symbol of the presence of God. The ark of God led the way across the river, and they were looking at it, and it seemed uncrossable. And nobody, now nobody that was alive at that time, they had heard about the Red Sea experience 40 years before. And so they didn't know really what to expect, but Joshua was a dynamic leader, and Joshua was an inspiring leader. You read about Joshua, who was a, a very inspiring leader along the way. He wasn't a Moses, but he was a very inspirational leader there. And he led them across the way there, and God, he, God used them to get them ready. But when they got to the Jordan River, it was harvest time. And at harvest time, the waters are still melting on the mountaintops. And as, if you've ever seen, like you'll when the, wa- when the snow is melting, not the waters, but the snows are melting, you watch the, the river flows, they come down. The, the waters are like a raging tur- a current there, and they just come down. We call them rapids there, and they're coming down very strongly. And they say that the Jordan River, when the snow melts and the water runoff comes, they say that the Jordan River can swell as much as 100 yards, listen, 100 yards or more in width. You imagine that for just a minute. You ever been through Arizona, New Mexico, they'll have signs up if you do a tourism around. They have signs everywhere. They say they warn you, be careful. Or Utah, they warn you if there's, a fla- if there's unexpected rains of a flash flood, get out of the way, right? You go hiking in the Hawaiian Islands in the mountain areas, they'll tell you before you go up there, be careful, we have unexpected rains, be careful, flash flood, because when they come, a little, little creek that's just flowing can become a torrential river in moments. And God was reminding them here, he says, listen, you're going to come to the river of life, just like the Jordan River, which has swelled up. But listen, as the priests were carrying the ark of God, as soon as their feet touched that water, the waters parted just like in the Red Sea. And the waters parted hither and thither, and the, and the riverbed became dry. And all those Jews walked across their dry shot. Nobody was bothered. Hey, listen to what God says here. When thou passest through the waters, he said, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And I want you to underscore that. He said, they shall not. They shall not. Listen, you're going to go through waters of life and times and periods. You think you're going to be drowning. You think about the water is going to go over your head. But God said in those trial experiences, they shall not overflow you. They shall not overcome you. Why? Because God is with you no matter what. But he tells us something else that's even more scary. He talks about the floods, but he also talks about the fire. Now remember, he's writing to Jews who, perhaps during this period of time, the Jews he's writing to had not experienced the Red Sea, and they had not experienced the Jordan River. And now they're in a different era of time, because that era of time was hundreds of years before. And then he's talking about fire, and none of them had experienced going through a fiery situation. And I think as he wrote this, this was very precious to three Hebrew young men whose names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews captive. He took all the young, young men. He told Hezekiah, God told Hezekiah, you're going to take your young men and make them into eunuchs. And they're going to put them into the employ of the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar knew that if he was going to have a strong kingdom, he wanted to take the best, most talented young people from all the nations he conquered. He would indoctrinate them with Babylonian concepts and, and the worldly wisdom and things of that nature. He tried to corrupt them with, with the Babylonian meats offered to idols and drinks and all those kind of things there. But there were four Hebrew young men that stood firm for God. Their names were Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets this great dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
He told them that you'll be this great image and that image is speaking about you. And he talked about just his kingdom and so forth there. But he said, I want to, I want you to understand your kingdom will not last. He says, God, God, he says, God is going to, he's going to, he said, there's going to be a rock that's going to be cut out. That's going to be cut out without hands. And that rock is going to come and it's going to crush your kingdom. It's going to crush your image. He was talking about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, a mountain that was not cut out with hands. Read that in Daniel chapter. There's a wonderful passage of scripture there. He's talking about God being controlled. He says, yes, you may exalt yourself, but he says, God's in control. Well, listen, when, when, when Daniel finished describing that dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar had, Daniel wanted him to make sure that God was in control and God loved his people and God was greater than Nebuchadnezzar. But Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had so many conquerings and so many victories and such a big ego. I mean, the man had an incredibly big ego. He thought about that image that Daniel talked about. He decided, you know what? I've got enough of vision. I'm going to make an image just like that. And the man made a monstrous image, if you can imagine, an image 90 feet tall. Now you think with me, just go outside when you let, when we end the message this morning and look at the height of this building, the Berean Center, which seems to be very high. Can you imagine an image back in those days, while well, they did with ropes and pulleys and all that, an image they made out of their hands that resembled Nebuchadnezzar 90 feet tall? I mean, where he put in the Valley of Dutra, can you imagine this monstrous image standing, standing up right there in the Valley of Dutra? How many men it took to cart that thing down there? They put it up erect, and from every direction, north and south, east and west, no matter where you're at, from a valley position or a mountain position, you couldn't help but see that, that image. And the king wasn't set with just putting the image there. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew, I'm making a new command. And the command is this. He says, I'm going to get the whole band out, and I'm going to get all the brass out. And he said, you're going to hear the sound of the cornet and the trumpet and all that. And when you hear that, everyone is supposed to bow to that image. When you bow to that image, that's going to be a good thing. You're telling me that you worship me. You're telling me that you know that I'm a great man. You're telling me you think that I'm God. He said, but if you don't, and he said, there's a consequence. And he said, if you don't, because I know some of you, you may have some reservation about bowing to this. He said, just to help you along the way, they're going to give you a creative incentive he said, I'm gonna, I've got a furnace outside of town. Everybody knew about that furnace because it was a huge furnace. It was a government furnace, okay? And he said, they burned things that furnace. They probably burned bodies in that furnace. And they burned a lot of things. It was a huge furnace, a huge mouth that even the size of a man could go through. He says, if you don't, you will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. That's what he said. He said in Daniel chapter 3, you'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And you have to imagine that being said in Hebrew, even in English, in any language, the idea, the colorfulness of the idea of a burning, fiery furnace. I mean, there's fire, there's burning. I mean, just all of the, the, the things that go with that, the smell and the, and the crackling and all that. I mean, that image was sent in everybody's mind. And so the day came, they put the image up. And when the sound of the music happened, everybody bowed because they thought about that fiery furnace. Everybody except for three young men. Well, everybody else was bowing. Here's Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. You say, Pastor, why don't you call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's kind of like a Jewish boy. I was preaching for Brother Tim Rasmussen, his church. The next, next day, I, I preached chapel for his high school, which was a big chapel group. And uh, a Jewish boy came up to me. I didn't know he was Jewish. A boy that was Jewish came up to me. He said, he was born again. He was saved. He said, hey, Pastor Fong, he said, I just want to ask, tell you something today. He said, I'm Jewish. I was born a Jewish boy. He said, I want to thank you. You're the first person I've ever heard preach in Daniel chapter 3 that called these boys by their Hebrew names and not by their Babylonian names. He said, why'd you do that? And I said, because I don't want them to be known by their, by their pagan name. I want them to be known by their saved name. Daniel means God is my judge. God is my helper. I mean, you look up the names of those three men, beautiful names. 
And these three Hebrew young men are standing there. The cornets are shouting. The trumpets are shouting. And all their peers, all their government peers, everyone who got a promotion along with them, they're all bowing to this image. Not these three young men. And they kept coaxing them. They said, guys, you better bow or you're going to that fiery furnace. They said, we're not going to bow. We're not going to bow. Word got back to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, being a man who's very egotistical and very prideful. The Bible describes this way. He was filled with rage. He was angry. You ever get anybody so angry that they, they look like they're going to kill you? You ever open your car door in a very close parking space, and as you open the car door, you, you, you try very carefully not to touch the other person's car, but they think you touch your car, and they come out, they've got a demonic look on their face. You, you dead my car, you hit my car, and they want to take vengeance on you. You think, well, I didn't touch your car. But Nebuchadnezzar just gave these men a promotion. And Nebuchadnezzar had a fondness in his heart towards Daniel, who was not there at that time. And we don't know where Daniel was. It doesn't really matter where Daniel was. The focus is on these three Hebrew young men. He said, now you heard the sound of the court. He said, by the way, he said, is it true? Is it true? They said, it's true. We didn't bow. Didn't make an excuse to make any stories up. They said, it's true. He said, well, listen, I'm going to give you another chance. And I think he just had a little bit of sympathy in his heart towards them because he just gave them promotion. And, and they were there with Daniel. They prayed for Daniel to have the right, the mind of God so he could interpret the dream. So maybe he had a little bit of sympathy in his heart there. And maybe he said, well, you know what? I, you know, these are not the guys I want to use as an example. I mean, they're exemplary. They're better than some of my magicians and other people, astrologers I have in my kingdom. He says, I, I really like to keep these guys around. They seem to be honest and reputable. So he says, maybe they just didn't understand. And he said, listen, I'm going to do it again. And he said, you're going to have the chance. But he said, if you don't bow, I'm going to tell you this time, you're not going to get another chance. I'm going to throw you in that fiery furnace. They said, King, with all due respect, we believe our God is able, and our God is able. Amen? That's what they said. I mean, they said, we believe. Now, they had never been down this road before. I want you to understand that. Amen? We, we want you to know, King, we believe our God is able to deliver us. That's like a slap in his face because he's thinking he's God and they're talking about the God. Amen. But they say this. They said, now we believe our God is able to deliver us, but if not, they weren't doubting God. They're just saying, we're just being realistic about how God works and God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They said, but if not, we will not bow. They said, if God doesn't deliver us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change if God delivers us or God doesn't deliver us. It doesn't change the fact God is still God and we still worship one God. It doesn't change it. Hey, listen, we have an election coming up on Tuesday. And listen, I'm praying for the right results in this election. I'm praying for things that will, for the right biblical values. But I'm going to tell you something. If the wrong person gets into the office, if someone gets into the office of president who has unbiblical values and doesn't go the way the Bible way, you know what I've learned from this? Whether, regardless of who's president, it doesn't change the fact God is still God. It doesn't change the fact that God's on the And maybe, hey, listen, America, it may be that God might have to put a, a candidate into office that is anti-biblical and anti-God and help us to feel the pressure because maybe we've been asleep too long and we need to wake the righteousness of sin. But maybe God's going to do that to put a little bit of fire under our feet to help us have a little bit more conviction to do a little bit for God. Because I'm going to tell you, in the four years we've had President Trump, we haven't advanced missions as far as we could. We haven't seen more soul saved as we could. We're not doing as much as we could for Jesus Christ. And maybe God needs to put us through a fiery situation to get us revived again and get us stirred up to realizing under these circumstances we better do all we can or we're going to lose more of our freedoms if we're not very careful. 
I just learned this along the way, that sometimes your convictions get stronger when you have a little bit more fire in your life. Well, they didn't bow. Man, if you read Daniel chapter 3, you have to imagine this guy. I mean, he is livid. You ever seen somebody get so, so mad? I mean, their, their face is just flush red. I, you, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, if he's dark here, his hair turned red. Amen, you know? I mean, you see the fire in his eyes. And he's probably cursing away. He's going out. He's cursing them in Chaldean language. And they're thinking, I'm glad I don't understand Chaldean language right now. Amen. Take them and bound them in their clothes and their hose and their hats. He says, take them the way they're at. He says, buy them. I mean, these are three, three Hebrew young men. He made them into eunuchs. Who's, who are they going to hurt? Amen. He ties their hands behind the back. He gets the strongest many he has, but he forgot. He told them to heat the furnace seven times hotter. Can you imagine heating something seven times hotter? I want to imagine that. If you bake something at 325 degrees Fahrenheit, can you imagine making it seven times hotter? Do you know what happens if you open your oven, if you make it seven times hotter and you're standing there, it's going to burn your face off. Am I right? You don't open the oven in that situation. Self-cleaning ovens, they tell you it's going to be at degrees. They tell you they cost you. If you open the oven, what's going on? Too bad for you. He's heated this thing up seven times hotter. His strong men get near and they know what's going to happen. It kills him instantly. Now, we don't know how these men got him in there. We don't know if they just shoved him in or whatever. But they have these three Hebrew young men. They're all bound. They throw him into the fire. They see them go in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar's sitting on his throne. He's right at eye's distance. He can't miss what's going on. I mean, he's right in his, right in his sight there. He's watching what's going on. These men are going in there. And he expects to hear crying. There's no crying. What's going on? There's no sound. Well, then he thinks, well, maybe, maybe, maybe they just died instantly. So he's thinking, well, if there's no sound, maybe there's a smell. There's no smell of burning. There's no sound, there's no smell. And so he's thinking, what is going on here? And he stands up and he sees a sight. And he says, hey, didn't we throw three men in there? They say, yeah, we threw three men in there. But how come I see four? And the fourth is like the son of man. Hey, you know what they're doing? Look at verse two. They were walking through the fire. I think those young men, God gave that verse there for those young men. They would, they, he told them, you're going to walk through the fire, but you'll not be burnt. Listen, he told them to come out of that fire. They brought them out, and he couldn't believe it. He says their hair was not singed. Their clothing was not burnt. Even the smell of fire was on them. And he talks about here that they had dedicated their bodies to God, and God had preserved this. You know what God is telling you and I through the example of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? When thou walkest through the fire, thou shall not be burnt. And to boot on top of that, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You know what? The flames didn't even come close to them. Now, how do, we, how do we amplify on that biblically? Look at Hebrews 11, verses 33 to 34. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 33 to 34. It says in verse 33, Hebrews 11, who through faith subdued kingdoms. That's what, that's what Daniel did, and that's what they did. And by the way, that's what we're praying. If we're going to overcome unrighteous governments, we can subdue kingdoms through faith. He said, who through faith subdued kingdoms, they wrought righteousness, they obtained promises. That's what's right here in verse 2. They stopped the mouths of lies. Notice verse 34. They quenched the violence of the fire. The fire didn't touch them. When they walked the fire, they put the fire out. They extinguished the fire. Hey, they were fireproof Christians. And here's what God says to you. You have my protective presence when you go through the waters and when you go through the fire. Hey, brother and sister in Christ. We have a church right now of members going through some waters and fires. I'm looking at some of you who've gone through some waters and fires. One of our members recently told me the passing of a loved one. They said, Pastor, I'm so weak. 
I'm so weak. I can't even stand. I talked to the son of the man whose service we had this week. I called him by his first time. I said, my first question is, hey, are you able to sleep? How's your appetite? Rough time sleeping. Thursday, speechless. It was very hard. Please pray for the Chan family. They're going through waters and fires right now. Indescribable. God says, I'll be with you. God says, you'll not be burned. He says, the flames shall not kindle you. He says, the rivers won't overflow you. Who said that? Only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who could promise that. There's only one Jesus, and we are his precious possession. There's only one Jesus, and we have his protective presence. We close. But you notice one more thing. Look at verses 3 and 4. There's only one Jesus, and we have been passionately or lovingly purchased. Now, you've got to remember, the Jews will be taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, but they're going to come back. Amen? They're going to come back after 70 years. But there would have to be an exchange. That, that happens historically. God's describing to them a historical exchange. But you know, if you're a conquering king, you don't like to give up prisoners. You don't, if you have to give a prisoner, you want something exchanged, Right? And God said in verse 3 to them, he said, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. He says, nobody else is going to save you. There's no other nation here. There's no other king. He says, you only have one Savior. By the way, there's only one Savior who can save you from your sins. And notice what he says in verse 3. I gave Egypt for thy ransom Ethiopia and Seba for thee, which Seba were the surrounding nations to, to Ethiopia, which belonged to Ethiopia. So you have to imagine with me just for a moment. Going south, the African nations that were very mighty. Ethiopia was a very mighty nation back in those times. Egypt was a very mighty nation back in those times. He says, I made an exchange. I gave them as a ransom for you. Now park, your, park yourself on the word ransom for me. We're almost done. He said in verse 4, since thou was precious in my sight, thou has been honorable and I've loved thee. That's a great thought right there. When you're going through extreme things, always remember this. God said you're honorable and you're precious in my sight and I love you. You get discouraged, come back there. And he says, therefore, notice this. Now he talks about this ransom again. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Have you ever heard of the term a king's ransom? You ever heard of that? King's ransom? Richard the Lionhearted represented England in many, many battles, especially during the time of the Crusades. Now, I'm not getting the Crusades and all that. He was loved by the English people. That's why he was called Richard the Lionhearted. He was a courageous king. He well represented his nation in the battle. After one of his conquerings, he made his way back, and as he was coming through Austria, Leopold V surprised him and took him captive. Totally surprised him. 
Leopold sent messengers to the English leaders and said, if you want your king back, you have to give me a ransom for him. And the ransom price is 150,000 marks, which is in our, in our dollars today, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, they said back at that time, I think, let me see, how many, how many, how many tons of silver was that? I think they said it was equal to three tons of silver back at that time. If you can imagine that, three tons of silver. You, you calculate the numbers out. Enormous ransom. In fact, the ransom amount, three tons of silver, 150,000 marks, was more than they had in the English wealth, the treasury. I mean, basically what they wanted was more than the English kingdom could come up with in their own government. They didn't have that kind of money. And so they thought, we want to get our king back. And so they put out a proclamation. They said, listen, we're going to have to tax all the people and raise the money by taxing. It was going to be a very, a very exorbitant tax that everyone had to participate in. And he said, we want to see how many of you would be willing to participate in this tax. And listen, amazing, because the people loved their king so much, every one of the citizens participated in the tax and above that tax. And in fact, many of the people that were very, very, very wealthy and had great fortunes, they pledged all their fortunes, all for the sake of raising enough money to bring their king back. Well, they raised enough money, and so when they brought him back, that's where we get our term, the king's ransom. They raised enough money in exchange to buy their king. Hey, can I tell you something? He does something about it up. He says, look, I'm going to give Egypt for thy ransom, and I'm going to give Ethiopia and Sebu. Now, do you think for just a minute, I'm going to give nations for your ransom, he said to Israel, to Judah. I'm going to give nations to, for your... And he says, on that, beyond that, verse 4, he says, I will give men for thy life. Now, that's, that's exorbitant, and that's, 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 that's lavish, and that's, that's a lot of money. Can I tell you something? There is a ransom bigger than that. And his name is Jesus Christ. Who gave his life a ransom for all to be testified in due time, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Jesus Christ was the ransom price for every sinner. And that ransom price was his shed blood and his death on the cross. He paid the exact price to pay your sin debt and mine for the sins of all the world. And when he did that in full, he left a zero balance and he paid the ransom price. Listen, Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the supreme, the only king's ransom that could be given for every sinner. You talk about speaking about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. You, you talk about speaking about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. He fulfilled it all because Jesus Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself, we are passionately purchased through his blood. There's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who died for your sins. There's only one Jesus who can atone for our sins. There's only one Jesus who can satisfy the demands of God the Father on the cross. There's only one Jesus who's a ransom for your soul. There's only one Jesus who's a mediator between God and man. There's only one Jesus who loves you more than anybody else could love you. There's only one Jesus who's with you. He says, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. There's only one Jesus who gives you his protective presence. And there's only one Jesus who calls you his precious possession. He created you, he formed you, he owns you. He said, thou art mine. What a mighty God we serve. There's only one Jesus. Whatever Jesus somebody shows you, you just have to ask him, is he like my Jesus? He said in verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord. Beside me there's no Savior. Do you know this Jesus as your Savior? If you were to die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Did you know he paid the ransom price for your sins? A ransom price of no good work, and no church attendance, and nobody else can do it for you. I mean, only Jesus could do it. He said, I am your Savior. Can you imagine the God who created us and formed us? He said, I am your Savior. 
you feeling lonely and discouraged, feeling unloved? Hey, he said, you're mine. You're going through deep waters, you're going through fires? He said, I'm with you. You feel like I'm worthless? He said, you're still mine. He said, I made you and I bought you. You're mine. Would you rest today in the comfort of a God who's holy and righteous and who loves you and cares for you and is with you through the fire and he's with you through the water and he passionately purchased your salvation and died on cross for your sins. Listen, probably up to 10 people I know of that I personally talked to on Thursday trusted Christ as their Savior the service we did. We live-streamed the service to the Philippines yesterday. It was 1 o'clock in the morning when they watch. We have 15 to 20 to watch live-stream, 140 views on Facebook. Gave an invitation there. I'm certain people got saved over there too. Would you get saved today? Would you invite Jesus Christ in your heart to be your Savior? He said, I, even I only, am your Lord. Beside me, there is no Savior. He'll save you today. You can be brought into his family and have your sins forgiven. Would you trust Christ today as your Savior?